0: Chapter 35 of McClellan's Own Story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. McClellan's Own Story by George Brinton McClellan. Chapter 35. Entering Frederick, The Lost Dispatch, Advance, The Battle of South Mountain, General Scott hails McClellan. In riding into Frederick, I passed through Sumner's Corps, which I had not seen for some time. The men and officers were so enthusiastic as to show that they had lost none of their old feeling. During the march, from Washington up, I was much with the regulars, generally encamping with them. I never can forget their constant enthusiasm. Even when I passed through them several times a day on the march, they would jump up, if at a rest, and begin cheering in a way that regulars are not wont to do, poor fellows. Our reception at Frederick was wonderful. Men, women, and children crowded around us, weeping, shouting, and praying. They clung around old Dan's neck and almost suffocated the old fellow, decking him out with flags. The houses were all decorated with flags, and it was a general scene of joy. The secession expedition had been an entire failure in that quarter. They received no recruits of the slightest consequence and no free-will offerings of any kind. It was soon ascertained that the main body of the enemy's forces had marched out of the city on the two previous days, taking the roads to Boonesboro and Harpers Ferry, thereby rendering it necessary to force the passes through the Catoctin and South Mountain ridges, and gain possession of Boonesboro and Rowersville, before any relief could be extended to Colonel Miles at Harpers Ferry. On the 13th, an order fell into my hands, issued by General Lee, which fully disclosed his plans, and I immediately gave orders for a rapid and vigorous forward movement. The following is a copy of the order referred to. Headquarters, Army of Northern Virginia, September 9, 1862. Special Orders Number 191. The Army will resume its march tomorrow, taking the Hagerstown Road. General Jackson's command will form the advance, and after passing Middletown, with such portion as he may select, will take the route towards Sharpsburg, cross the Potomac at the most convenient point, and by Friday night take possession of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Capture such of the enemy as may be at Martinsburg, and intercept such as may attempt to escape from Carpers Ferry. General Longstreet's command will pursue the same road as far as Boonesboro, where it will halt with the reserve, supply, and baggage trains of the Army. General McClaws, with his own division and that of General R.H. Anderson, will follow General Longstreet. On reaching Middletown, he will take the route to Harpers Ferry, and by Friday morning possess himself of the Maryland Heights, and endeavor to capture the enemy at Harpers Ferry and vicinity. General Walker, with his division, after accomplishing the object in which he is now engaged, will cross the Potomac at Cheeks Ford, ascend its right bank to Lovettsville, take possession of Loudon Heights, if practicable, by Friday morning, Keys Ford on his left, and the road between the end of the mountain and the Potomac on his right. He will, as far as practicable, cooperate with General McClaws and General Jackson in intercepting the retreat of the enemy. General D.H. Hill's division will form the rear guard of the army, pursuing the road taken by the main body. The reserve artillery, ordnance, and supply trains, etc. will precede General Hill. General Stewart will detach a squadron of cavalry to accompany the commands of Generals Longstreet, Jackson, and McClaws and with the main body of the cavalry, will cover the route of the army and bring up all stragglers that may have been left behind. The commands of Generals Jackson, McClaws, and Walker, after accomplishing the objects for which they have been detached, will join the main body of the army at Boonesboro or Hagerstown. Each regiment on the march will habitually carry its axes in the regimental ordnance wagons for use of the men at their encampments to procure wood, etc. By command of General R.E. Lee, R.H. Chilton, Assistant Adjutant General, Major General D.H. Hill, Commanding Division. On the morning of the 13th, General Pleasanton was ordered to send Reynolds' brigade and a section of artillery in the direction of Gettysburg, and Rush's regiment towards Jefferson to communicate with Franklin, to whom the 6th U.S. Cavalry and a section of artillery had previously been sent, and to proceed with the remainder of his force in the direction of Middletown in pursuit of the enemy. After skirmishing with the enemy all the morning and driving them from several strong positions, he reached Turner's Gap of the South Mountain in the afternoon, and found the enemy in force and apparently determined to defend the pass. He sent back for infantry to General Burnside, who had been directed to support him, and proceeded to make a reconnaissance of the position. The South Mountain is, at this point, about 1,000 feet in height, and its general direction is from northeast to southwest. The National Road from Frederick to Hagerstown crosses it nearly at right angles through Turner's Gap, a depression which is some 400 feet in depth. The mountain on the north side of the Turnpike is divided into two crests or ridges by a narrow valley, which, though deep at the pass, becomes a slight depression at about a mile to the north. There are two country roads, one to the right of the Turnpike and the other to the left, which give access to the crests overlooking the main road. The one on the left, called the Old Sharpsburg Road, is nearly parallel to and about half a mile distant from the turnpike until it reaches the crest of the mountain when it bends off to the left. The other road, called the Old Hagerstown Road, passes up a ravine in the mountains about a mile from the turnpike and bending to the left over and along the first crest, enters the turnpike at the mountain house near the summit of the pass. On the night of the 13th, the positions of the different corps were as follows. Reno's Corps at Middletown, except Rodman's division at Frederick. Hooker's Corps on the Monocacy, two miles from Frederick. Sumner's Corps near Frederick. Banks' Corps near Frederick. Sykes' division near Frederick. Franklin's Corps at Buckystown, Couch's division at Licksville. The orders from headquarters for the march on the 14th were as follows. 13th, 1130 p.m., Hooker to march at daylight to Middletown. 13th, 1130 p.m., Sykes to move at 6 a.m. after Hooker on the Middletown and Hagerstown Road. 14th, 1 a.m., Artillery Reserve to follow Sykes closely. 13th, 8.45 p.m., Turner to move at 7 a.m. 14th, 9 a.m., Sumner ordered to take the Shookstown Road to Middletown. Footnote. By letter dated Boston, May 19, 1884, General F.A. Walker called the attention of General McClellan to a statement made by the Comte de Paris in his History of the Civil War in America, attributing delay in the advance from Frederick to General Sumner in the Second Corps. The following reply, which I find among the papers relating to South Mountain, indicates General McClellan's intention to embody its substance in his narrative when he should reach this point in his review. 32 Washington Square, New York, May 21st, 1884 My dear sir, Yours of the 19th has just reached me. My attention was never called to this point in question. Like yourself, I am fully satisfied as to the candor and honesty of the Comte de Paris, but his work is not free from unintentional errors, of which this is an example. My report shows that at 8.45 p.m. of the 13th, the 2nd Corps was ordered to move at 7 a.m. on the 14th by the direct road to Middletown, following Sykes at an hour's interval. Hooker did not move as promptly as ordered, and this delayed Sykes and Sumner. Therefore, at 9 a.m., I ordered Sumner to take the more circuitous road by Shookstown, that his march might be free from encumbrance. The 2nd Corps made its march and arrived on the field as rapidly as circumstances permitted. I was never dissatisfied with this march of the 2nd Corps, and never criticized it to anyone. I can imagine the 2nd Corps and its brave old commander slow in getting out of a fight, but they never showed any hesitation or tardiness in getting into battle. The promptness and energy with which Sumner moved from Grapevine Bridge to the Field of Fair Oaks is simply one example of the manner in which that corps always acted while under my command. You may rest assured that no member of the Second Corps has its honor more at heart or is more proud of its uniformly admirable conduct, whether on the march or in battle, than is the commander under whom it first served. In my account of Antietam, I will take care to correct the error of the Comte. And am always your friend, George B. McClellan, General F.A. Walker. End footnote. 13th, 6.45 p.m., Couch ordered to move to Jefferson with his whole division. On the 14th, General Pleasanton continued his reconnaissance. Gibson's battery, and afterwards Benjamin's battery, of Reno's Corps, were placed on high ground to the left of the turnpike, and obtained a direct fire on the enemy's position in the gap. General Cox's division, which had been ordered up to support General Pleasanton, left its bivouac near Middletown at 6 a.m. The 1st Brigade reached the scene of action about 9 a.m. and was sent up the old Sharpsburg Road by General Pleasanton to field the enemy and ascertain if he held the crest on that side in strong force. This was soon found to be the case and General Cox having arrived with the other brigade, and information having been received from General Reno that the column would be supported by the whole corps, the division was ordered to assault the position. Two 20-pounder parrots of Simmons' battery and two sections of McMullen's battery were left in the rear in position near the turnpike, where they did good service during the day against the enemy's batteries in the gap. Scammon's brigade was deployed and, well covered by skirmishers, moved up the slope to the left of the road with the object of turning the enemy's right, if possible. It succeeded in gaining the crest and establishing itself there in spite of the vigorous efforts of the enemy, who was posted behind stone walls and in the edges of timber, and the fire of a battery which poured in canister and case shot on the regiment on the right of the brigade. Colonel Crook's brigade marched in columns at supporting distance. A section of McMullen's battery, under Lieutenant Croom, killed while serving one of his guns, Was moved up with great difficulty and opened with canister at very short range on the enemy's infantry, by whom, after having done considerable execution, it was soon silenced and forced to withdraw. One regiment of Crook's brigade was now deployed on Scammon's left and the other two in his rear, and they several times entered the first line and relieved the regiments in front of them when hard pressed. A section of Sumner's battery was brought up and placed in the open space in the woods, where it did good service during the rest of the day. The enemy several times attempted to retake the crest, advancing with boldness, but were each time repulsed. They then withdrew their battery to a point more to the right, and formed columns on both our flanks. It was now about noon, and a lull occurred in the contest which lasted about two hours, during which the rest of the Corps was coming up. General Wilcox's division was the first to arrive. When he reached the base of the mountain, General Cox advised him to consult General Pleasanton as to a position. The latter indicated that on the right, afterwards taken up by General Hooker. General Wilcox was in the act of moving to occupy this ground when he received an order from General Reno to move up the old Sharpsburg Road and take a position to its right overlooking the turnpike. Two regiments were detached to support General Cox at his request. One section of Cook's battery was placed in position near the turn of the road, on the crest, and opened fire on the enemy's batteries across the gap. The division was proceeding to deploy to the right of the road when the enemy suddenly opened at 150 yards with a battery which enfiladed the road at this point. Drove off Cook's cannoneers with their limbers and caused a temporary panic in which the guns were nearly lost. But the 79th New York and 17th Michigan promptly rallied, changed front under a heavy fire, and moved out to protect the guns with which Captain Cook had remained. Order was soon restored, and the division formed in line on the right of Cox, and was kept concealed as much as possible under the hillside until the whole line advanced. It was exposed not only to the fire of the battery in front, but also to that of the batteries on the other side of the turnpike, and lost heavily. Shortly before this time, Generals Burnside and Reno arrived at the base of the mountain, and the former directed the latter to move up the divisions of Generals Sturgis and Rodman to the crest held by Cox and Wilcox, and the move upon the enemy's position with his whole force, as soon as he was informed that General Hooker, who had just been directed to attack on the right, was well advanced up the mountain. General Reno then went to the front and assumed the direction of affairs, the positions having been explained to him by General Pleasanton. Shortly before this time, I arrived at the point occupied by General Burnside, and my headquarters were located there until the conclusion of the action. General Sturgis had left his camp at 1 p.m. and reached the scene of action about 3.30 p.m. Clark's battery of his division was sent to assist Cox's left by order of General Reno, and two regiments, 2nd Maryland and 6th New Hampshire, were detached by General Reno and sent forward a short distance on the left of the turnpike. His division was formed in rear of Wilcox's, and Rodman's division was divided, Colonel Fairchild's brigade being placed on the extreme left, and Colonel Harland's, under General Rodman's personal supervision, on the right. My order to move the whole line forward and take or silence the enemy's batteries in front was executed with enthusiasm. The enemy made a desperate resistance, charging our advancing lines with fierceness, but they were everywhere routed and fled. Our chief loss was in Wilcox's division. The enemy's battery was found to be across a gorge and beyond the reach of our infantry, But its position was made untenable, and it was hastily removed and not again put in position near us. But the batteries across the gap still kept up a fire of shot and shell. General Wilcox praises very highly the conduct of the 17th Michigan in this advance, a regiment which had been organized scarcely a month, but which charged the advancing enemy in flank in a manner worthy of veteran troops, and also that of the 45th Pennsylvania, which bravely met them in front. Cook's battery now reopened fire. Sturgis's division was moved to the front of Wilcox's, occupying the new ground gained on the further side of the slope, and his artillery opened on the batteries across the gap. The enemy made an effort to turn our left about dark, but were repulsed by Fairchild's brigade and Clark's battery. At about seven o'clock, the enemy made another effort to regain the lost ground, attacking along Sturgis's front and part of Cox's. A lively fire was kept up until nearly nine o'clock, several charges being made by the enemy and repulsed with slaughter and we finally occupied the highest part of the mountain. General Reno was killed just before sunset while making a reconnaissance to the front, and the command of the Corps devolved upon General Cox. In General Reno, the nation lost one of its best general officers. He was a skillful soldier, a brave and honest man. There was no firing after 10 o'clock, and the troops slept on their arms, ready to renew the fight at daybreak. But the enemy quietly retired from our front during the night, abandoning their wounded and leaving their dead in large numbers scattered over the field. While these operations were progressing on the left of the main column, the right, under General Hooker, was actively engaged. His Corps left the Monocacy early in the morning, and its advance reached the Catoctin Creek about 1 p.m. General Hooker then went forward to examine the ground. At about 1 o'clock, General Meade's division was ordered to make a diversion in favor of Reno. The following is the order sent. September 14th, 1 p.m. General... General Reno requests that a division of yours may move up on the right north of the main road. General McClellan desires you to comply with this request, holding your whole corps in readiness to support the movement and taking charge of it yourself. Sumner's and Banks' corps have commenced arriving. Let General McClellan be informed as soon as you commence your movement. George D. Ruggles, Colonel, Assistant Adjutant General, and Aide de Camp, Major General Hooker. Meade's division left Catoctin Creek about 2 o'clock and turned off to the right from the main road on the old Hagerstown Road to Mount Tabor Church, where General Hooker was, and deployed a short distance in advance, its right resting about one and a half miles from the turnpike. The enemy fired a few shots from a battery on the mountainside, but did no considerable damage. Cooper's Battery B, 1st Pennsylvania Artillery, was placed in position on high ground at about three and a half o'clock, and fired at the enemy on the slope, but soon ceased by order of General Hooker, and the position of our lines prevented any further use of artillery by us on this part of the field. The 1st Massachusetts Cavalry was sent up the valley to the right to observe the movements, if any, of the enemy in that direction, and one regiment of Meade's division was posted to watch a road coming in the same direction. The other divisions were deployed as they came up, General Hatches on the left and General Ricketts, which arrived at 5 p.m. in the rear. General Gibbon's brigade was detached from Hatch's division by General Burnside for the purpose of making a demonstration on the enemy's center, up the main road, as soon as the movements on the right and left had sufficiently progressed. The first Pennsylvania rifles of General Seymour's brigade were sent forward as skirmishers to field the enemy, and it was found that he was in force. Meade was then directed to advance his division to the right of the road so as to outflank them, if possible and then to move forward and attack while Hatch was directed to take with his division the crest on the left of the old Hagerstown Road, Ricketts' division being held in reserve. Seymour's brigade was sent up to the top of the slope, on the right of the ravine through which the road runs, and then moved along the summit parallel to the road, while Colonel Gallagher's and Colonel Magleton's brigades moved in the same direction along the slope and in the ravine. The ground was of the most difficult character for the movement of troops, the hillside being very steep and rocky, and obstructed by stone walls and timber. The enemy was very soon encountered, and in a short time the action became general along the whole front of the division. The line advanced steadily up the mountainside, where the enemy was posted behind trees and rocks, from which he was gradually dislodged. During this advance, Colonel Gallagher, commanding 3rd Brigade, was severely wounded, and the command devolved upon Lieutenant Colonel Robert Anderson. General Meade, having reason to believe that the enemy was attempting to outflank him on his right, applied to General Hooker for reinforcements. General Duryea's brigade of Ricketts Division was ordered up, but it did not arrive until the close of the action. It was advanced upon Seymour's left, but only one regiment could open fire before the enemy retired and darkness intervened. General Meade speaks highly of General Seymour's skill in handling his brigade on the extreme right, securing by his maneuvers the great object of the movement, the outflanking of the enemy. While General Meade was gallantly driving the enemy on the right, General Hatch's division was engaged in a severe contest for the possession of the crest on the left of the ravine. It moved up the mountain in the following order. Two regiments of General Patrick's brigade deployed as skirmishers, with the other two regiments of the same brigade supporting them. Colonel Phelps' brigade in line of battalions in mass at deploying distance. General Doubleday's brigade in the same order bringing up the rear the 21st New York having gone straight up the slope instead of around to the right as directed, the second U.S. sharpshooters was sent out in its place. Phelps and Doubleday's brigades were deployed in turn as they reached the woods, which began about half up the mountain. General Patrick with his skirmishers soon drew the fire of the enemy and found him strongly posted behind a fence which bounded the cleared space on the top of the ridge having on his front the woods through which our line was advancing, and in his rear a cornfield full of rocky ledges, which afforded good cover to fall back to if dislodged. Phelps' brigade gallantly advanced under a hot fire to close quarters, and after ten or fifteen minutes of heavy firing on both sides, in which General Hatch was wounded while urging on his men, the fence was carried by a charge, and our line advanced a few yards beyond it, somewhat sheltered by the slope of the hill. Doubleday's brigade, now under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Hoffman, Colonel Wainwright having been wounded, relieved Phelps and continued firing for an hour and a half. The enemy, behind ledges of rocks some 30 or 40 paces in our front, made a stubborn resistance in attempting to charge on the least cessation of our fire. About dusk, Colonel Christian's brigade of Ricketts Division came up and relieved Doubleday's brigade, which fell back into line behind Phelps. Christian's brigade continued the action for 30 or 40 minutes. When the enemy retired, after having made an attempt to flank us on the left, which was repulsed by the 75th New York and 7th Indiana. The remaining brigade of Ricketts Division, General Hartstuff's, was moved up in the center and connected Meade's left with Doubleday's right. We now had possession of the summit of the First Ridge, which commanded the turnpike on both sides of the mountain, and the troops were ordered to hold their positions until further orders and slept on their arms. Late in the afternoon, General Gibbon, with his brigade and one section of Gibbon's battery, B, 4th Artillery, was ordered to move up the main road on the enemy's center. He advanced a regiment on each side of the road, preceded by skirmishers, and followed by the other two regiments in double column, the artillery moving on the road until within range of the enemy's guns, which were firing on the column from the gorge. The brigade advanced steadily, driving the enemy from his positions in the woods and behind stone walls, "...until they reached a point well up towards the top of the pass, when the enemy, having been reinforced by three regiments, opened a heavy fire on the front and on both flanks. The fight continued until nine o'clock, the enemy being entirely repulsed, and the brigade, after having suffered severely and having expended all its ammunition, including even the cartridges of the dead and wounded continued to hold the ground it had so gallantly won until 12 o'clock, when it was relieved by General Gorman's brigade of Sedgwick's division, Sumner's Corps, except the 6th Wisconsin, which remained on the field all night. General Gibbon, in this delicate movement, handled his brigade with as much precision and coolness as if upon parade, and the bravery of his troops could not be excelled. The 2nd Corps, Sumner's, and the 12th Corps, Williams, reached their final position shortly after dark. General Richardson's division was placed near Mount Tabor Church, in a position to support our right, if necessary. The Twelfth Corps and Sedgwick's division bivouacked around Bolivar, in a position to support our center and left. General Sykes' division of regulars and the artillery reserve halted for the night at Middletown. Thus, on the night of the 14th, the whole army was massed in the vicinity of the field of battle, in readiness to renew the action the next day or to move in pursuit of the enemy. At daylight our skirmishers were advanced, and it was found that he had retreated during the night, leaving his dead on the field and his wounded uncared for. I had reached the front at Middletown about noon, or a little before noon, and while there received the messenger from Harper's Ferry by whom I sent the dispatch to General Miles before mentioned. Immediately afterwards I rode forward to a point from which I could see the gap and the adjacent ground. About the time I started, Reno sent back a message desiring that a division might be sent to the rear of the pass. I sent the order to Hooker to move at once. Burnside had nothing to do with this. Marcy went with him and remained there most of the day. I rather think he really deserved most of the credit for directing the movement, but with his usual modesty, he would say little or nothing about it. I pushed up Sturgis to support Cox and hurried up Sumner to be ready as a reserve. Burnside never came as near the battle as my position yet it was his command that was in action. He spent the night in the same house that I did. In the course of the evening, when I had prepared the telegram to the President, announcing the result of the day, I showed it to Burnside before sending it off, and asked if it was satisfactory to him. He replied that it was altogether so. Long afterwards, it seems, that he came to the conclusion that I did not give him sufficient credit, but he never said a word to me on the subject. On the next day, I had the honor to receive the following very kind dispatch from the President. War Department, Washington, September 15, 1862, 2.45 p.m. Your dispatch of today received, God bless you and all with you. Destroy the rebel army, if possible, A. Lincoln, to Major General McClellan. The following dispatch was also received on the 16th. West Point, 16th, 1862, received Frederick, 16th, 1862, 10.40 a.m to Major General McClellan. Bravo, my dear general. Twice more and it's done. Winfield Scott. End of chapter 35.